Welcome to the Hope Collective Message Podcast, where we find a confident expectation of a better tomorrow in the character and promises of God. To learn more about who we are, visit thehopeco.com. Here's today's message. Our passage is Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and we'll return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David! Praise God in highest heaven! So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. This is the word of God. Well, hello, Hope Collective. It's good to be with you all today. Glad that we get to share uh, this time together on Palm Sunday. If you are new to the Hope Collective, or you're just jumping in with us. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Alex. I'm one of the Hope Collective's pastors, and you are jumping in with us as we start what is probably the most significant week on the entire Christian calendar, Holy Week. This time spanning from Palm Sunday today all the way through Easter Sunday when we remember and reflect on everything that happened in the life of Jesus during these eight days and how those eight days and what Jesus accomplished literally changed the course of humanity's destiny with God. In this week, there are going to be churches all over the world gathering to celebrate through ritual and reflection this incredible week. And I don't know about you or what uh, church tradition you may have grown up in or religious experiences you had, but growing up in the church that I was a part of, Palm Sunday was always this huge deal. And as we kicked off Holy Week, there was this sense of excitement and anticipation of everything that we were going to be walking into as a church. And so on Palm Sunday, we'd have kids coming down the aisle, waving palm branches and saying in their little voices, Hosanna! I tried to get as high as I could there uh, to mimic that. But there was always this anticipation and this excitement and this like intensity of joy and expectation of what this time and what this week was going to mean. And so these days were always really up and exciting. And for full disclosure, this is not going to be one of those Sundays. 
The conversation that we're going to have this morning is a really important conversation. And for many of us in this room will probably be a really uncomfortable conversation as well. There could be some awkwardness, there could be some heaviness, and depending on the hand that life has dealt you over the past few weeks and months, this could actually be a really tender conversation or even a very painful one. It's a conversation about something that we all kind of have in the back of our minds and do our very best to keep there. Until in the worst possible moments, it comes roaring back to the forefront of our attention just long enough to remind us of how helpless we feel. And the very reason that we don't want to talk about it is the reason that we need to talk about it. Because to let an uncomfortable and awkward conversation that actually has a lot to do with the hope that we have because of God and the strength of soul that we can have to go throughout our life, to let a little bit of awkwardness keep us from having that conversation would not at all be the way of Jesus, who was not afraid to have these awkward and uncomfortable conversations because he knew that ultimately it was for our good. So the conversation that we need to have today revolves around this question. And there's honestly not a good way that I've found to start this conversation or have this conversation or end this conversation. But the conversation has to do with this question. What does it look like to live life well when you live under the shadow of death? What does it look like to live life well when you live under the shadow of death? Even saying that word, death, for some of us, we already feel uncomfortable. There's already a desire to escape this conversation as quickly as we can because this feels morbid and isn't something that we're comfortable talking about, and we just don't want to go there. And can we just name that? That if that's where you're at and that's what you're feeling, you're feeling that for a reason because... We were actually never created to hold death. Death was not supposed to be part of the story in God's equation. And so the reason it feels painful and uncomfortable is because we weren't actually designed to hold this, and yet, this is where we find ourselves. So we can name that, and we can also have a conversation about it because we know that this wasn't something that Jesus shied away from. So we have this conversation because this isn't something that anyone wants to talk about, least of all me. <laughs> and even in preparing this week, it was like, God, are you sure that this is what we're supposed to talk about? Okay. But this is a question that personally I haven't been able to let go of for the past few months. And we'll get into that, but just for the sake of clarity, everything's fine. Our family's good, we're all in good health, everything's all right, it's all good. And for an anxious personality type like mine, that can sometimes be almost more unsettling because you're like, okay, how long is this going to last? When's the other shoe going to drop? But a couple weeks ago, knowing that I was going to be speaking on Palm Sunday, shared with Dave and the rest of the team, like, hey, I think we need to have a conversation about this. I think there's something that God wants to say. And as we thought about it, it was like, all right, let's press in, let's see what happens. And that was before the events of this past week when yet another school shooting 
takes the lives of six, and then the seventh perpetrator, this time in Nashville. That was before a fire in a migrant center on the U.S.-Mexico border claims 40 lives. That was before storms ripped through the southern United States and destroyed homes and destroyed families, knowing that there's still a war that's raging in Ukraine that we see refugees from every single week in our Hope Center on Saturdays. And these are just the handful of tragedies that made the news cycle. And we know that there are thousands more both farther away and closer to home for many of us in this room. What does it look like to live life well when we live under the shadow of death? On this of all days, Palm Sunday, there's a lot that Jesus can teach us about how we can face this question and this reality of life with honesty and courage because of how he did. And so what I'd like to do before we go any farther is to take a moment to pray. Both for us, that we can have this conversation well, and as we do also for the families of those who've lost loved ones as a result of these tragedies this past week. Can we do that together? Heavenly Father, we are able to call you our Father because you have declared yourself to be. And you have told us that you are good and you are strong and that you love us. And it's on those three things that we ask for your help today. May you help us to have this conversation about living life well as we live under the shadow of death. Help us to have this conversation well. And may you speak exactly what we need to hear in these moments. We want to pray too for the moms and dads who have lost kids this week for the brothers and sisters who have lost siblings, for the sons and daughters who have lost parents, friends who will not be able to have a conversation with someone they've lost again. God, we pray that you, as the God of all comfort, would give them exactly what they need for every day as it comes. And may they feel your closeness and your goodness and your strength in a way that they never have before. And may you surround them with men and women who can pour the courage into them that they need and be there to be the comfort that they need. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So what does it look like for us to live life well when we live under the shadow of death? Death is a reality that we all have to face. And most of us in this room can remember the moment when death entered into our story. I was nine years old when I was told by my parents that grandma was sick. And we didn't call her grandma, uh, we called her Oma. She grew up in uh, Germany, emigrated here after she got married to my grandfather. So we called them Oma and Opa, just German for uh, grandma and grandpa. And Oma and Opa's house was the place to be growing up. 
They were the ones who always had chocolate chip cookies ready. They were the ones who hosted every Easter and every Christmas. And I can still remember the M&Ms in the dish that Oma would have out. And you could take as many as you want because it was Oma's house. It was pastels at Easter and red and green at Christmas. Vivid memories of this. They always gave the best presents. Oma and Oma's house was the place to be. And I remember at nine years old when mom and dad said that Oma was sick, I didn't I didn't really understand what that meant. Like, when you're nine years old, sick means you have cold. It was like, is she throwing up? Like, she's sick. What's going on? I didn't have a category for cancer. I didn't have any idea how to understand what steroid treatments were. But I knew that we spent a lot of nights in the waiting room of the intensive care unit. I remember thinking the plaque in the room was funny. I see you waiting room. It was like a joke. Like, huh? That's what I remember, and I remember gradually coming to grips with the fact that this was bad and that Oma might die. And I didn't know what to do with that, there's not much you can do as a nine-year-old, and so I would just go to bed at night and I would pray, God, please don't let Oma die. Please don't let Oma die. Please, 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 please. I didn't have words, so I just said please over and over and over again in my prayers. God, please, 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 don't let Oma die. And she did. And I didn't really know what to do with that. And when I think back to that time of life and how I felt, I don't remember feeling angry although I may have been. I don't remember the emotional experience of sadness, although I know that I was deeply sad. I just remember feeling really confused because I knew enough about God and about the Bible to know that death was not supposed to be how this story went. I knew that sickness was never part of God's plan I knew that prayer was supposed to help some way, and yet here we were. And about that same time of life, I just remember thinking a lot about death as a kid, as a nine-year-old, and like what that experience would be like, and what comes after, and the idea of eternity and life that just goes on and on and on, and trying to wrap my brain around this idea of life that just goes on forever. And as I thought about it, starting to feel like my brain was just like spinning out and I couldn't control it anymore. What I now look back on and see is a mild anxiety attack. Like I would just get all spun out about it. I mean, like I, I, I have to go do something else. I have to talk to someone. I have to go play something. I have to go like, I just can't think about this anymore. And so I took that thought and tried to shove it in the back of my mind and do anything else to take my mind off of it because it was just too overwhelming and confusing and I didn't know what to do about it. And my guess is, for a lot of us in this room, that's not an uncommon experience. We all can probably remember the first time that death became a part of our experience, where we lost someone close to us. Maybe that first funeral, the first time you saw your parents crying, the moment you started asking those big questions about God and life and death and heaven and hell and what all of this ends with. 
we can all remember that point in the conversation and when that all came to us. But for most of us, that whole conversation feels so heavy and overwhelming that we just don't want to go there. And it doesn't help that as a society, we don't do a good job of helping people process these moments of grief and death and loss. And the best that we can seem to come up with is stages and flowcharts to make grief as predictable and efficient as possible. How long is this going to take? When am I going to get over this? Why do I still feel the way that I do about that person, even though they've been gone for so long? So we hold this topic at arm's length, trying to find a way to keep it off of our minds until early one morning we get the phone call or we read the Facebook post. We hear the diagnosis or we just watch as they get older and older and we start to ask, will this be the last time? Will this be the last Christmas we get to have together? Will this be the last photo they're in? And in those moments, we are confronted with how ill-equipped we are to face the reality of death. And we're talking right now about physical death and about losing the people that are close to us and those moments when it all comes kind of rushing back. And many of us in this room have experienced that the past few weeks and months, a number of us in this room have lost people that are close to us. Now, Renee and I, our family, her side and my side between us, we've lost four extended family members in the past six months. And we're now having the conversations with our kids that our parents had with us at about the same age that they are now. And you feel like you're fumbling your way through it and trying to articulate the, what do we do? in these moments. And you're just reminded about how much you don't really feel equipped to have these conversations. But that's just the things that happen to us in our own lives, but then we're also confronted with the stories of tragedy and death and destruction that we are pelted with every single day in the media as we're exposed to it. But even loss and transition of any kind is a form of death, and this separation from something that mattered to us, whether that's sending a kid off to college and a season of your family coming to an end, whether that's moving or changing jobs, leaving a community, ending a relationship, letting go of a desire, or watching a dream die. Death is already an uncomfortable topic, but when we take all of these things together, it just feels overwhelming. And the shadow that it casts goes across our entire life. And try as we might to not think about it, the next time it comes roaring back, we still don't know what to do. How do we live our lives when we live under the shadow of death? And something more than just trying to ignore it and bypass it. But is there a way that we can face this reality, not just run from it? But how we face the reality of death comes down a lot to what we believe to be true. 
And for a lot of people, both in this room and outside of it, because this isn't something that we typically talk about in our communities or even in our churches, the loudest, most persistent voice of how we're supposed to live under the shadow of death isn't coming from the church. It's not coming from scripture. It's not even coming from the teaching of other religions. It's coming from the voice and the teaching of popular culture. What do we mean by that? Well, I think it's telling that at the Oscars a couple weeks ago, the Academy Award winner for Best Picture was the absurdist comedy drama Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And for those of you who haven't heard of this film or haven't seen it, let me give you a brief synopsis. Laundromat owner Evelyn Wang, played by Michelle Yeoh, embarks on an epic quest to save the multiverse from a literal everything bagel using nothing but the power of kung fu and human connection. I'm not wrong. Like, you can look it up. This is the Academy Award-winning film that people said, yes, this is best picture. This is the best thing we've seen all year. And just to be clear, I also have not seen this movie, but listen, it's not for lack of desire because it sounds fascinating. But trying to watch a two-hour film in your mid-30s with three kids is like, that's not something that you say, oh, we should watch a movie. That's something you have to put on the calendar. It's like an appointment. You have to make it an event. It's like, it's like scheduling a doctor's visit, really. That's what it is. It's like, okay, i got to find a chunk of time where I've got two hours and somebody can watch the kids and I'm going to get there 15 minutes early and quit drinking fluids an hour beforehand. Like, you have to plan. So the best I can do these days for watching movies is reading the Wikipedia plot summary. Like, full transparency, that's what I can do. And so I've read the summaries, and I've read other reviews, and I know some of you who know me are like, that is one of the most Alex Gowler things I've ever heard. <laughs> Rather than just watch the movie, you turned it into a research project. I know, okay? Quit judging me in my imagination, please. But the thing about this movie is that it deals with these questions as absurd and crazy as it is, dealing with these deep questions of morality and meaning and purpose and life and death and what comes after all of this and therefore what should we do now. One of the big premises of the movie is that if anything can happen, if anything is possible, then who's to say what should happen, what is right, and what is wrong? And if anything is possible and you can do anything, then really nothing really matters. But how do you live your life in light of all of that? And not to spoil the Wikipedia summary, but the conclusion of the film and the lesson that it seems to give us as we look to the reality that one day this will all come to an end is, listen, nothing really matters. Not you, not the people around you, not all of the things that you work your entire life to gain or the things that you are scared to death of losing. None of it all really matters. So really the way that you need to live your life is just do whatever you want. Just be kind. And whether it's kind of the popular level version of this belief 
that inspires YOLO or the more elaborate and sophisticated versions of this that come from folks like Sam Harris and the End of Faith and the New Atheist Movement, the best advice that the world seems to be able to offer to us is, look, death is right around the corner and there's nothing after. So how do you live your life in light of that? Well, just do what you want. Just don't be a jerk. And to try to live your life under that shadow and trying to say, just do no harm with however many years you have between now and then. Some of us in this room have gotten to the bottom of that valley and that's what we're trying to make peace with. That valley of the shadow of death, when we get to that very bottom of it, to just say, okay, well, I guess that's it. But others of us in this room, we know that there has to be something else. There has to be something else that matters and is meaningful because this doesn't, this doesn't jive. There's something wrong with this. And it's at the very bottom of that valley that many of us in this room, some of us may be experiencing it like right now, like viscerally. We feel it. We feel that grief. We feel that heaviness. We feel that loss and the pain and the struggle with, does that even matter? And it's at the very bottom of that valley that we are told that we have a good shepherd who is with us who knows what it's like to be exactly where we are and has something to offer us that this world can't. So what does Jesus have to say about living our lives under the shadow of death? Because Jesus was one of us. He was human, just like us. He encountered the same things that we did. He looked at the same realities that we choose to ignore, what does he have to offer us on this day of all days, Palm Sunday? How did Jesus live his life under the shadow of death? So we go to Mark 11, 1 to 11, often called the triumphal entry in our Bibles and throughout church history. I'm not going to reread this text for you, but I want to set the scene of what is happening as Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was set on top of a mountain, Mount Zion. And Jesus is coming from the east, Bethany and Bethphage. He's walking this long distance where he has to ascend the Mount of Olives where he finds a donkey, a colt. And he begins to ride down through the Kidron Valley and up again to the city of Jerusalem as the sun is setting in the western sky and the shadows are lengthening from the city but lighting up the Mount of Olives that he's coming down. And as Jesus comes over the Mount of Olives and down, the sun is shining bright on him and there is a crowd of people surrounding him with songs of praises and songs of joy. Jesus is sitting on this donkey, but it's not just a way to get into Jerusalem. It is actually a direct fulfillment of a prophecy that the people of Jerusalem knew by heart. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. 
He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Jesus is the one who said, this is how I want to enter into the city. The people pick up the cues, and so they take up a song of praise that they would have sung to enter into a coming king, a rescuer, entering into the city of Jerusalem, the words of Psalm 1, 18, 25, and 26, that the priests would sing from the temple as the king is coming into Jerusalem. They take up this song, please, Lord, please save us, which in Greek is translated, Hosanna. Please, Lord, please save us and bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of God. The people who are following Jesus, they are taking off their outer garments and palm branches, laying them on the ground for Jesus to be able to ride over as he comes into the city. They can't get close enough to him. They are singing all of these praises of joy as he enters into the city. This is the ticker tape parade of a conquering hero in the red carpet welcome for a coming king. This is everything that's happening outside of Jesus as he comes down the Mount of Olives getting ready to go into Jerusalem. That's what's happening on the outside, but what's happening on the inside for Jesus? Because as the sun continues to set over the city of Jerusalem and Jesus reaches the deepest part of the Kidron Valley, even if the people have forgotten, Jesus knows that in Joel 3, the Kidron Valley is identified as the place where at the end of time, God is going to bring all of the nations of the world And finally judge them. He knows as the shadows lengthen and cast over the very valley that he is in. A valley of judgment that the shadow is cast by the temple at the highest place in the city of Jerusalem. A city that Jesus himself has said no prophet can die it seems if it's not in this place. A city that stones its prophets and murders the messengers that are sent to it. And as Jesus gets to the deepest, darkest place of this valley, as the shadow from the city of Jerusalem where he will meet his death is over him, here's what Jesus knows. By the time we get to Mark 11, Jesus has already predicted his death three times. Beginning in Mark 8, following Peter's declaration of Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus begins to fill in his disciples about what's going to happen Next, Jesus knows that on this very trip to Jerusalem, he is going to be betrayed into the hands of hostile Jewish leaders by one of his own followers. He knows that after that, he will be tortured, mocked, and ridiculed by the ruling Romans. And he knows that then he will be sentenced to death with no escape. All of this is in Jesus' mind as he approaches Jerusalem, knowing that this will be the place where it all happens. And even while he is surrounded by songs of joy and celebration, he looks into the faces of the people around him, knowing that by the end of the week, these disciples that are with him now, one of them will betray him, another will disown him, and the rest will completely abandon him. He knows that the voices right now crying Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will be the same voices that in less than a week will be screaming, crucify him. And he knows that this city that right now is lying their garments in the dust for him to walk over will eventually strip him of his garments, give him the 40 lashes minus one, and then roll dice to see who gets to take his tunic home when it's all said and done. 
This is what's in the back of Jesus' mind as the people are singing his praises, welcoming him into the city of Jerusalem. And as much as we can talk about what Jesus was doing in this moment and why he was doing it and the significance of it all, the question that rests for us right now is, how? How does someone do this last and greatest work with all of that death and loss so close in their imagination? What does it take for someone to be able to go into this week knowing that everything that they've worked so hard to accomplish with this group of 12 people is going to evaporate overnight? that all the people that have been taught and all the praises that are being sung will be nothing, that the very people he came to offer life to will put him to death. How does someone do that? What does it look like to live that week well, knowing that death of every kind was right around the corner? Jesus knew something that we can never forget. He believed something that we cannot move past from and that we cannot fail to ignore because Jesus, in doing this last and greatest work in his life, knew that death was not the end of the story. In every prediction of his death in the book of Mark, there's a little note that Jesus makes sure to include in all of his teachings to his disciples. Mark 8, 31, he says that of himself, the son of man, he will be killed but three days later, he's going to come back from the dead. Almost like it's a, like an aside, like an asterisk. It's like, yes, I'm going to die. That's going to happen. But I'm also going to come back to life. It's not going to take. It's going to be totally temporary, just a few days, and then I'll be back. He says that in Mark 8.31. He says it in Mark 9.31. He says it again in Mark 10.34. Yes, I'm going to die. Death is going to happen, and... It's not going to be the end of the story. How is Jesus able to live this last week of his life under the shadow of death? It's because he believed that death was temporary. That this death was just the next step towards what God was doing next. And how do we know this? Hebrews 12, too, says that because of the joy awaiting Jesus... He endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and is now seated in honor... Beside God's throne, Jesus knew that death was not the end of the story, that there was something on the other side of this. Thinking about what was coming, what does Jesus say in John 12, 23 and 24? He says that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. There is life that comes after death. Jesus knew that death was not the end of the story because our God, it seems, is in the business of bringing life to dead places. This is Genesis 1, where the Spirit of God hovered over the chaos and the darkness before creation and said, let there be, and life was. This is the story of grace in Genesis 3, 
where Adam and Eve take from the tree and are sentenced to death, and yet God provides for their life. This is the story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. This is the journey of God's people from Egypt to the promised land. This is the prophets of the Old Testament looking at the exile and God's people judged and scattered throughout the entire world and saying there will be a day when they come back to this city and welcome God again. Jesus knew that death was not the end of the story and resurrection power would not fall on something that had not died. And because Jesus knew that death was not the end of the story, by end of the week, Jesus knew that he would be able to say to those very people who betrayed and abandoned and disowned him, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus knew that to those who cried, crucify him, he would be able to say, I have called you by name. Jesus knew that to those very people who stripped him and beat him and put him on that cross, he would be able to say, I will clothe you with my righteousness. And the moment they put him on that cross, resurrection life was already on its way. As Jesus came into this last and greatest work of his life, coming off of the Mount of Olives down into this dark valley of judgment, knowing what awaited him on the other side, Jesus knew that death was not the end of the story. And the reason that it's called a valley is because there is something on the other side. And if that hope that Jesus had was enough to get him through this week in his life, then the hope that he offers is enough to get us through whatever this life might throw our way, including death itself in every form. And so what does Paul tell us in Romans chapter 8, 31 and 32? What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who could be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Down to verse 38 and 39, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life. Neither angels nor demons, neither our fears about today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of this bruised and broken and decaying creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is resurrection hope. This is a hope that does not run away from reality, but is able to look square in the face of the death and destruction that we have already experienced too much of in our life, but to look at it and say, you don't get to choose how this story ends. He does. And when we face that reality of death in every form, whether that's the moments of transition and loss we experience every single moment of our day, whether that's the fear that we have of losing the people and the things that matter to us, or whether that is approaching that threshold of death itself for us, 
we know that that is not something that we have to run from or ignore or try and distract ourselves from, but there is a confidence and a hope from an expectation that there is something on the other side of this that only God himself is able to provide for us because we do not walk that valley alone. We follow a shepherd who knows what it's like to go into that valley of death and come back out to new life. And I'm not sure where this morning's conversation finds you. For some of us in this room, this is something that we're aware of but maybe try to ignore. For others of us, we are in the middle of this moment where all of these questions have kind of come back to the forefront of our minds. But this week of all weeks is the time to have this conversation because the less we talk about this as a church, the less we talk about this as a community, the less prepared and equipped we are to deal with it when it comes up. And so we have these conversations, but we do not have them alone. And we do not look to the rest of the world to try and give us an answer for this. We have these conversations together and we follow the example and the cues of Jesus, who is the one who knows how to bring life to dead places. And this truth that resurrection power cannot fall on something that has not died. So what we want to invite you to do this holy week is to go through this week with two hands. And in one hand, we hold the celebration and the festivities, being together with one another, being together with family, and this joy of the new life that we have in Jesus. And in the other hand, we carry the grief and the loss of the death that we have experienced and the death that we know we live under the shadow of. We carry both of these things together. And the hope that we have does not diminish the pain that we experience, but the pain that we experience does not diminish the hope that we have. So we'd invite you to go through this week with two hands. And we want to invite you to to come to Good Friday. Because there is no Easter Sunday without Good Friday. And to try and just ignore or move past this without honestly facing the reality of death, but knowing that we face it with a hope that the world cannot take away, that death itself cannot take away. This is something we need to be reminded of. So we'd invite you between 3 and 8 p.m. this Good Friday to come as a family, come as an individual, come as a community group. And it's an open space. There's not going to be a formal or official leading of anything, but we've put together a Good Friday guide to help you walk through what that day, what that Good Friday was in the life of Jesus, to confess the truths of the gospel that we need to be reminded of and to think about what this day was like for the one in whose footsteps we follow. These are going to be available as you leave today. We'll also have some available on Good Friday itself when you show up here. But we want to invite you to this because we cannot just blow past it and ignore it. I'm going to invite the band to come up. In a few moments, we're going to take an opportunity to respond to what we believe that God is saying. But earlier, I mentioned how this question of how do we live our lives well when we live under the shadow of death, how this has been something that I just haven't been able to kind of let go of these past few months. And it's because this past fall, we were doing, um, we were in the middle of our growth series, and we were talking about discipleship, and we were talking about how Jesus says to those who would follow him, he says, take up your cross daily. Be ready to put to death the the sin that you have always been so that you can become the person that I'm shaping you into. 
And this idea of allowing the old to die so the new can come forward. We were about to have this conversation. I'm sitting over there getting ready to come up here. The worship is going. And all of a sudden, I just feel this heaviness on me. And I hear this voice that says, you know what, Alex? There's going to come a day when this whole death thing isn't just a metaphor for you. That someday you're going to come to that threshold and how do you know that there is actually anything on the other side? How do you know that when you come to that moment of your own death, that there's something that waits you? How do you know your family's going to be okay? How do you know that everything that you've put your life into actually matters? And I'm sitting over there about to come up here and speak and I'm just, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, God, I don't know where this is coming from. I don't know what to do with this. I just need you to help. And in that very same moment, I sense the words, Alex, listen. By the time you get to that threshold, by the time you look death in the eyes, you will have spent an entire lifetime following in the footsteps of a God who brings life from death. Why would that moment be any different? We have a good shepherd who knows what it's like to go through the valley of the shadow of death, a good shepherd who leads us through that with a promise of new life, that death is not the end of the story. And maybe one of the reasons that Jesus is inviting us to die daily is because he knows that that day is coming. And by the time we get there, he wants us to have time after time after time, day after day after day, moment after moment of seeing God bring life to dead places. And we can have a confidence on that day that doesn't come from an idea, but comes from a lived experience and evidence of an entire lifetime, decades of being able to say, I watched God bring life when I thought it was over. I watched God bring healing when I thought that that was going to be the end of the story. I watched God restore that relationship. I watched that relationship die, and then I watched God do something even greater than that. I know. I know that this isn't the end of the story. Because I follow a God who's already gone there. And not only is he with me, he's waiting for me on the other side of this. And that confident expectation of a better tomorrow that we talk about will be true when it matters. We're going to take a moment to respond to what we believe God is saying to each and every one of us today. Because again, we all come into this place from different places. And we believe that when we come here and we offer our praises to God He hears our voices, and then when we open ourselves to him speaking, he speaks. And if he speaks, we want to listen. And we don't just want to listen, we want to respond. And so what's going to happen is I'm going to pray for us, and then Hartman's going to come up and lead us in a time of response to what we believe God is saying to this room today. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for never shying away from a difficult conversation. 
we thank you that you know what it's like to be one of us, to wrestle with the same things that we do, to have the same concerns that we do, but thank you that you have a confidence that you offer us no matter what we may face in this life. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that in this moment, you would open us up to everything that you want to say. Give us open hearts and open ears, open minds to everything you want to do in us so that you can continue to do your work through us. We are listening. Will you please speak? Amen. Thanks for spending time with the Hope Collective. If you appreciated this message, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast or share it with a friend. You can also leave a rating or review, which will help other listeners find us online. Thanks again for joining us.